So we adopted an approach that said, no, these other statues are fine, but they cannot dominate. Because, you know, Queen Victoria was a colonial. Some of these other guys were, yeah, they had slaves. Mm -hmm. One of the problems with, with the Confederate statues, well, they, they're on pedestals and they demand your attention. Mm -hmm. You have to look up to them, whether you want to or not. You go to Richmond, Virginia, you're down the street, that's it. You can't miss it. It dominates. Yeah, they're part of our history, but frankly, I don't want to look up at them all day. I don't want to be forced to look up to them. So yeah, they can survive, almost as, as reminders of what you probably shouldn't do. So we were able then to, to add uh, things. So we have sites of international security. You can walk in the footsteps of Gandhi and Mandela in the city. Wow. You don't have to demolish anything else. You, you simply build up those two iconic figures and what they meant. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Here's your host, Megan Hayes. On this episode of Sound Effect, we have two guests who share a common history and interests. Robert Haswell was a senior lecturer in geography at the University of Natal, Peter Maritzburg, between 1974 and 1989, before entering parliament in South Africa, first as a member of the Democratic Party, and then as an African National Congress member of parliament from 1989 to 1994. Between 1996 and 2010, he served as the Municipal Manager and Senior Executive Manager of the Umsunduzi Municipality. He is a board member of the Amgangandulavu Economic Development Agency. As a geographer and as a political activist, he has written extensively on the cultural geography of place and memory, racial landscapes, racial and social justice, and sports as mediators of political antagonisms. Haswell speaks on meeting and working with Nelson Mandela, and he is on our campus to share this lecture as well as to engage more deeply with some of our students and faculty. Rob Haswell, welcome to our campus and welcome to Sound Effect. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Daryl Kruger began his tenure as Provost and Executive Vice Chancellor at Appalachian State University in July 2015. Kruger came to Appalachian from the University of New Orleans, where he was Dean of the College of Education and Human Development. He holds a doctorate in geography from Louisiana State University. In addition to the University of New Orleans, he has held administrative and faculty posts at Illinois State University and has been on faculty at the University of Louisiana at Monroe and Louisiana State University. Kruger's historical geography research, publications, and presentations focus on South Africa and the United States, and his fellowship appointments include the Harvard Graduate School of Education's Institute for Educational Management, the American Council on Education, and the Fulbright Group Project Abroad, South Africa. Daryl Kruger, thank you for joining us on Sound Effect. Glad to be here. Thanks, Megan. So I'd like to start with you, Daryl. Could you take a moment to talk about why you invited Rob Haswell to our campus and what you hope our campus will gain from his visit? Certainly. Uh, Rob, first and foremost, is a geographer, as you mentioned. Um, he's an exceptional teacher, and I had the privilege of studying with him nearly 30 years ago. And I think given Appalachian's commitment to teaching and learning, I thought him coming to campus and interacting with, with some classes, which he did, would be very beneficial as a teacher. But equally importantly, Rob uh, also is... Uh, worked in local government, and I think I think of much of his work as kind of applied cultural historical geography. And given some of the things we continue to wrestle with in the United States, I think we can learn from his experience uh, as a academic geographer working in an applied sense. If I can give you a specific example, I think right now nationally we continue to speak about Confederate monuments and memorials and there's lots of discussion around those and I think um, some of the work that uh, Rob and folks in Peter Maritzburg worked on, it's been possible for them to um, be more inclusive and, and take more of an additive approach rather than a subtractive approach. So I think as a campus we can learn much from Rob's experience and I think the students did in the uh, presentation and discussion last night was informative and, and fruitful. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. Can you talk a little bit about, um, I know you share a professional history. Can you talk about how the two of you met and how you got to know Rob Haswell? Yeah, Rob and I met uh, back in 1988. I had just finished a bachelor's degree and was looking to either study geography or town planning. And I remember going to the University of Peter Maritzburg where Rob worked and I'd never heard of what cultural geography was. And I said to Rob, what is what is this cultural geography? And he said, don't worry, come here, you'll enjoy it. And so I went to Peter Maritzburg in 1988 
and studied with him and, and three other faculty. And because of that experience, I decided to come to graduate school at LSU to work on a master's degree and eventually a PhD. And as Rob will mention, he does have some connections with LSU, so that's sort of our academic connection. And so we've known each other for about 30 years, and it continues to be a fruitful and enjoyable relationship. Rob's been a very, very good mentor, so thank you for that again. So Rob Haswell, um, I'm interested in um, your work at LSU, and uh, in particular, I read an interesting anecdote about how the LSU Rugby Club came into being. So can you tell us a little bit about um, you know, your work there, and um, particularly um, you know, talk about the Rugby Club and how it came into existence? Okay. How did I know this would come up? Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're born white in South Africa, and you have two arms and two legs, you play rugby. Okay. <laughs> Let me give you an example. In a South African high school, you enter high school, let's say you're 12 years old, that school will field an under 13 A, B, C, D, E, F team. Under 14, the same. Under 15, the same. And then senior teams, first, second, third, fourth, fifth. So in any good rugby play in high school, on an average Saturday, 15, 16 rugby teams will play against the teams from another school. So rugby, for white South Africans, particularly of Afrikaans background, is pretty much a religion, um, which may be understating its importance, incidentally. So I, I had played rugby at high school. I played rugby at, at the University of Edwardesrand in Johannesburg. Got to LSU in 1970. I'd finished a master's degree at Southern Illinois. So I had a three-year period where I fiddled around with flag football, basketball. There was no rugby there. And I'd actually thought, well, basically my rugby playing days are over. Two guys walked into my room and they said, are you the white South African guy that's just joined the faculty? And I said, yes. They said, you, you play, you're interested in rugby? And I said, yeah. And the one guy pulled out a rather battered, rather round rugby ball and said, well, we'd like you to start rugby. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. And it turned out the one guy had played some rugby in Maryland. The other guy was a, a real southerner. And he told me, yes, we tried a couple of years ago. We had a game, but it ended in a brawl. <laughs> so, so I immediately said, well, look, guys, I love rugby. It's, it's part of me, but who are we going to play against? No, he said, don't worry. There's a team in Hammond, Louisiana. There's a team at Tulane. There's Loyola, Bring Hill College, Alabama. I said, hey. You mean there's three or four clubs, you know? Yeah, then there's clubs in Texas, blah, 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 you know. So I said, okay. So uh, we put a little notice in this, the Daily Student newspaper. Anybody who likes football is going to like rugby. It's a crazy hard contact sport. No pads, no blocking, but you'd knock the hell out of each other. And then you drink beer together after a game. I think that caught their attention, maybe <laughs> the beer. But the first meeting I get there, I've got this bad rugby ball. Over 80 students turned up. Wow. When's the first practice? <laughs> so that, that was it. I then uh, scratched around. I still had an old pair of rugby because rugby played in shorts. I walked out and the, I could see the Americans were looking thinking, no, no, no. This cannot be a rough game if you're going to wear short. You know, this, this looks like you're on the beach. What are you talking about? So they got over that and... Uh, as it turned out, I was quite lucky because in rugby, there's four or five key positions. It's like if you're going to start a football team. If you don't have a quarterback, it's pretty difficult. So I, I could play that kind of quarterback, the playmaker role. Had a couple of big guys who'd been in a scrum before, so they could stand up. Um, and then there's no shortage of big, tall American guys who've played basketball who are ideal for winning lineouts, rebounds, as in, in rugby. And, of course, for backline runners, hey, you know, Louisiana's full of them. I found it very easy to teach Americans because I learned that, in fact, American football didn't just fall from the sky. It was actually adapted from rugby. Harvard and, Harvard and Yale used to play rugby against each other in the 1870s. Harvard played a 15-man game based on the game rugby in England. Yale happened to prefer an 11-man game of rugby on a narrower field. So when Harvard and Yale played, on the Saturday they'd play the Harvard game, on the Sunday they'd play the Yale game. Cut a long story short, in the end, Walter Camp at Yale became a leading light. So if you ask me why are there 11 players in American football on that size field, it's because Yale played rugby. Hmm. 
with 11 players on that field. So Yale then looked at rugby and said, this is a mass of bodies all clamoring, wrestling for the ball. What, the ball's in amongst there somewhere. One team keeps it. So he said, hey, we've got to separate this. So he took a rugby scrummage and he created a line of scrimmage between them. And he then systematically said, okay, one team cannot have the ball for 30 minutes. So you've got four downs to make 10 yards. Okay, so that then changed. Then you've got to mark the cross line so you get the gridiron football. So from, from those beginnings, and it really struck me, you know, that the goalposts, the width and the crossbar in football are identical to those in rugby. It's a telltale. It tells you this is where the game comes from. So there are one or two relics of rugby left in football, but obviously football went its... I don't know whether to be happy about Walter Camp or curse him, <laughs> because, but for him, America probably would now be the world's best rugby-playing country. And they will be one day. There's no question about it. So to cut a very long story short, I was able to print something, almost like the Ten Commandments. So in rugby, you may not pass the ball forward. You may not block anybody. You can only tackle the person who has the ball. And if you're scared, get rid of the ball. <laughs> pass, it, pass it laterally to the guy next to you. So it was very easy. In two practices, I could take a guy who'd played football. You're playing on a field. The objective of the game, advance that ball and cross the opposition's line. Hey, if you can run through people, so much the better. But use the ball. Lateral, pay three, four lateral balls. And, and it's non-stop. There's no downs. And of course, you've got to learn how to tackle because you don't have pads. You know, I look at football now, football's in a crisis because of all the concussions and brain damage. They need to look at rugby. We tackle big people every day of the week because we know how to tackle, we know how to use the shoulder, we know how to use the arms. We don't have helmets on, so you learn where to put your head because if you put your head in front, you get, you get kicked, <laughs> you get concussed. On that score, the Seattle Seahawks are now employing rugby coaches to teach their, their defensive teams uh, how to do it. So... Within two, three weeks, we, we romped all over Tulane, Loyola, um, Hammond. We whipped all of them. Uh, so I think we won four or five games. It got very popular. Within the first two years, we produced two guys who went on to play rugby for America and, and in different parts of the world. Because Louisiana's football country, and you have a permit. You've got, guys, you've got hundreds of students who played high school football, who thought they'd make the LSU side, who didn't get on. What do they do? And so rugby filled that vacuum. Um, so we had guys coming out and literally, I'd see a guy on a Tuesday and say, listen, I want you out here two, three days because you're playing in my team on Saturday. He'd say, I don't know the rules. I said, I don't want you to know the rules. I just want you to get the ball and run and, and add American flair to it. Do what another rugby team's not going to expect you to do. And uh, yeah, so rugby got big on campus. We actually played a couple of curtain raises to football in Tiger Stadium. So, yeah, the club will be 50 years old in 2020, and uh, it's still going strong. So, and rugby's a brotherhood. Once you start playing, you know, you go to war with people <laughs> without, uh, without the ammunition and, and the protective clothing. So once you've sweated blood, sweat, and tears with the rugby people on your own team, you develop enormous respect for somebody who clobbers the hell out of you, legitimately and fairly on a field. So rugby's a... It's unlike any American sport. It's a rough, tough game, but sportsmanship is the order of the day. You listen to the referee. You don't argue with him. If a guy hits a, puts a big hit on you, you get up, you wait for him to get the ball. You give him one back with interest. So, yeah, it, it's been an amazing success story um, that it's still going. And I think, as you've seen, now that rugby sevens got into the Olympics, I look forward to the day when America is able to see that they indeed have so many surplus football players that could be playing rugby. And they'll beat the world. They'll beat the rest of the world because you've got the best athletes in the world. I'm going to look at our game this weekend a little bit differently than, uh, than I think <laughs> yeah. I would have prior to this conversation. Yeah. You talked about this a little bit, but I, I want to dig a little bit uh, deeper into the power of building uh, of sport in building community. Can you talk about your personal experience with, um, with sport and how it allows communities to come together? Yeah, look... Amazingly, and uh, I mean, I guess 90% of the credit of what happened in sport in South Africa must go to Nelson Mandela. While he was on Robben Island, 27 years, not entirely all on the island, but obviously having 
nothing but time to think. One of the many things he did was he learnt the Afrikaans language because the Afrikaners were the ruling party. They were the architects of apartheid. And he knew that when he came out, unless he can speak their language, how the hell is he going to negotiate a solution to the country's problems? So having learnt the language, he then also began to appreciate that rugby was very close to Afrikaners' heart, that next to their Dutch Reformed religion, rugby was number two. And South Africa were very good at rugby. It was the only sport in which South Africa could play the rest of the world and triumph. So again, if, if you Afrikaners who've been beaten by the English way back, it's lovely to get one over them. So rugby international games, uh, when South Africa plays England or Wales, you sing the national anthems of each country before the game. So it, it, it's, it's armed conflict mm -hmm. with, 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 with good rules. So I, I cannot overestimate the importance of rugby to white Afrikaners. This, this was their moment. Mandela realized that, and South Africa just happened to be able to host the World Cup in 95. That's the year after he became president. And he saw exactly what this meant to the Afrikaners. And against his own party, he said, hey, and the, the South African team is known as the Springboks. Their emblem is the antelope, the Springbok. And the ANC said, no, that's an apartheid symbol. It must go. It has to be replaced along with the flag, the anthem. Let's reject it. Mandela said, no, it's an important symbol. You elected me to unify the country. Don't now take decisions that divide us even further. We've got enough divisiveness in this country. It's a time for healing. He said, I want us to keep the Springbok, and I want people to support the Springboks, because it's no longer an all-white team, it's now a South African team. Get behind it. Mm. And he prevailed. He stuck his neck out, because in the ANC, you can be the leader, but if the collective says, no, 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 it would have been a massive humiliation for him to do that. But he, he stuck to his guns. South Africa got to the finals of the World Cup in South Africa. He comes out wearing the Springbok jersey. Hey, I'll get choked up thinking wow, about Wow, yeah. Anyway, um, I think almost within a minute, he turned the whole country on its head. Mm. So, yeah, on a, on a smaller scale, um, thanks largely to the effort of one of my sons, because a lot of white South Africans then also believed, well, that's fine, but black people will never like rugby. They love soccer. And we've shown on our local campus in Peter Mansburg the exact opposite, that rugby can be exciting, can be attractive. So that university, which is now 90% of black student body, now feels a rugby team which will have 10, 11 black players. And we often, we joke, we say, yeah, there's a white quota. <laughs> we need two or three we need two or three tall white guys to win the ball for us. And it, it's now the most popular sport. It exceeds soccer in terms of its appeal. So if you go and watch those games, you watch rugby there being played and enjoyed by black people, you sit there and you think, you know, it's almost as if apartheid never existed. Because these are things which people said will never happen. So yeah, sport has been able to yeah, work wonders. It's really amazing to me because I think about rugby as such, a, you know, an aggressive and competitive sport, and yet it was such a unifying factor yeah. um, in in times of, you know, mm. real turmoil. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, Rob, how and why did you get into politics? Yo, it's gonna be a long answer. <laughs> yeah, let me let me let me cut to the chase. Yeah, look, I think by the mid to late nineteen eighties. Uh, there was reason to be optimistic. The winds of change were blowing, not just across Africa, but in South Africa. One could sense that at last some kind of realism was coming into, into the scene. Mandela was not just in jail for 27 years, he was a banned person, mm -hmm. banned organization, which meant that nobody could print a picture of him or quote him. So I had to come to America to learn about who the hell this guy was. What did he stand for? 
So I've got a lot to thank America in that regard. The more I read about him, I said, gee. He says, South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black and white. Man, what's so terrible about what, what do we got to what, We put a man in jail for saying that? Um, so I, I got involved in local politics, um, on environmental issues, but very soon realized, listen, in environmental is, is, is a sideshow in relation to what needs to be done. So I, I began to introduce motions about calling for non-racial elections and so on at a local level. That attracted the attention of some guys who were forming a new political party. They got hold of me one day, no, we want you to be a candidate. I said, no, 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 I'm not going to get involved in white politics. No, 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 this is not white politics. This is the last white election. Once we're in, we're going to push like mad for the ANC to be unbanned. As soon as they're unbanned, we're going to seek to work closely with them. We want to avoid what's happened in the rest of Africa. Black government comes in, whites pack and leave. So we've got to become the passport. We've got to be the bridge that shows we can work, we can use our expertise to help usher in a sensible, sane majority government in the country. I said, that sounds good, but I don't believe you. They said, well, you can write it into our constitution. So I wrote that clause. So on that basis, I get elected to Parliament in 1989. The first sitting on the 2nd of February 1990, the then President F.W. de Klerk announces, I am today unbanning the African National Congress. I will be releasing Mr. Mandela in due course. Bang! Hallelujah! It's happened. So, uh, massive celebration. Because I thought, okay, hey, this is exactly what I wanted. Go to the caucus meeting of the party and say, okay, we, now what? No, well, we must, you know, we have to move cautiously. I said, hey, our constitution, we got elected to now start talking seriously to the ANC. Yeah, no, we will, we will. But the, clearly the, the, the leadership was stalling. They didn't want to. This carried on, 1981. We more or less forced them. And we had a two-day session, 15 from the Democratic Party, 15 from the ANC, chaired by Mandela. At the end of the two days, he said, look, I think we have more in common than separates us. Let's not play semantics. He said, I think we should form joint working groups. He said, I'll be perfectly honest with you. We can learn a lot from your experience, your expertise. We're going to win the election, make no mistake. He said, but we are naive when it comes to finance, running a country, budgeting contacts with business, economic advice. He said, and that's your guy's bread and butter. So let's work together. We don't have to merge. You don't have to lose your identity, but let's work together. And of course, we were about to go into serious negotiations about a new constitution. Again, I thought, hallelujah, again. It very soon became clear to me that the Democratic Party had, despite signing the joint agreement, would rather work closely with the the apartheid government party. And I said, hey, no, man, I, I feel totally betrayed then. Because mm. uh, I, didn't, I didn't stand for parliament, I didn't get elected on the basis. So in April of 92, five of us just said, hey, it's no good fighting and arguing with these guys every week. So uh, we made an appointment, we went to see the ANC, we met Mandela and we said, yeah, we are. We're offering our services to the ANC, take us or leave us, but that, that's who we are. He said, look, I need to consult with, uh, with my regions. I don't know you from a bar of soap. Let me see what kind of, you know, are you good guys? Have you got any standing? Come back and see me next week, which we did. Came back the next week. He walked in. He said, gentlemen, you're welcome to join the ANC. We welcome you with open arms. One condition, you must pay your $12 membership. I jumped up. I had a 20. I slapped it in his hand. He said, now? I said, yes. And I said, you can keep the change. <laughs> <laughs> so I've still got my original membership card that he signed. Um, and then, you know, Andy Warhol said everybody has to be famous in their life, even if it's for only 15 minutes. So, yeah. So I became instantly famous, hated by a lot of white people. I was a you-know-what lover. I was this, I was that. Mm. I was a turncoat, I was a traitor, whatever. But for every white person, I probably gained a thousand black admirers. So it was a whirlwind. Democratic Party, if you had a meeting, you did 30, 40 people. ANC, you get 30,000. 
Well, made international news. I mean, yeah, was, and I mean, you yeah. know, so so that whole moving around then with Mandela, going to rallies, introducing him, having to give a vote of thanks after him. I mean, how do you do that? How do you introduce this guy? How do you speak after him? He's left. Everybody's walking out. You're supposed to speak. Um, yeah. So very quickly, and then at local government. I became the first ANC mayor of my city and the first city manager. And in the run-up to the 94 elections, the ANC asked me to organize one day with him. You're the geographer. You know where to take him. Urban, rural, big, small, blah, 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 blah. So Mandela came down and I said, this is what we have. He said, well, you're the boss. I said, I beg your pardon. He said, you're the boss. You tell me. I do whatever you do. What do you tell me to do? So I had incredible quiet moments with him where you get beyond the mask, mm -hmm. the smiling, lovable, fantastic guy that he is, but you see him in quiet times when he's, he's not so certain, when maybe he's emotional or whatever. So that, 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 that was an incredible experience. Um, and then Peter Maritzburg and Daryl touched on this. We were a typical British colonial city, statues of Queen Victoria, the Dutch founders who laid it out, Victorian architecture, that was it. I stood up one day and said, you know, this city is famous for one thing only, and it's actually infamous. This is where Mahatma Gandhi got thrown off a train, because mm. although he had the ticket, he had the wrong color. I said, that's a site of international significance. The station is there. We can, we can mark that spot. We can mark where he spent the first night and decided there and then that he would launch a nonviolent resistance campaign, which changed the course of history in India. South Africa, and inspired the civil rights movement in this country. Mm -hmm. So I said, hey, we've got a site of international significance. What have we got statues of Queen Victoria for? Nothing against Queen Victoria. I, I never met the lady. but <laughs> So I managed to convince the council then that we should have a statue of Gandhi, that that was easily the most famous incident in the history of the city. So the most prominent statue in the main street, right outside the colonial buildings that he peppered with petitions and letters and so on, symbolically that's where he stands. He occupies pride of place. So the other statues stay, mm -hmm. but they're almost incidental. You, you pass them. They don't stop you. And just in passing, one of the problems with, with the Confederate statues, whatever you think, is they, they're on pedestals and they demand your attention. Mm -hmm. You have to look up to them, whether you want to or not. You go to Richmond, Virginia, you're down the street, that's it. You can't miss it. It, it, it. it dominates. So we adopted an approach, said, no, these other statues are fine, but they cannot dominate. Because, you know, Queen Victoria was a colonial. Some of these other guys were, yeah, they had slaves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're part of our history, but frankly, I don't want to look up at them all day. I don't want to be forced to look up to them. So yeah, they can survive, almost as, as reminders of what you probably shouldn't do. So we were able then to, to add uh, things, and then, so we, uh, with the Mandela's assistance, I asked him if he, because he was arrested, we knew, somewhere north of our city, outside the city, on the 5th of August, 1962, and I said to him one day, look, if I drive you down that road, would you find the spot? He said, oh, yes. He said, bo, bo. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> he described the whole scene. And as a geographer, I knew. I, could, I said, hey, I can narrow it down now to two, two or three miles. So we duly took him down that road. And he said, yeah, this is where it all happened. So the Mandela capture site has become an international. So the, the city now has the railway station, the Gandhi statue, the Mandela capture site. He was captured there, he was brought to Peter Maritzburg, he spent one night in our prison, he appeared in our magistrate's court the next morning. So we have sites of international security. You can walk in the footsteps of Gandhi and Mandela in the city. Wow. You don't have to demolish anything else. You, you simply build up those two iconic figures and what they meant. And I think that's also crucial. I, mean, I was in New Orleans once and I'm thinking, was Robert E. Lee ever in New Orleans? How come he occupies on top? I mean, and I'm not being disparaging towards, I'm sure he was a wonderful general, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is, to me, totally out of place in New Orleans um, and so on. So we've, we've said, yes, the others are part of the history. Um, but our parks, our street names, and our most prominent statues must surely reflect people who were ahead of their time, people who, who we admire to this day. Yeah, so I've had incredible experiences 
with Mandela. Um, and as I said, for for two days I was actually his boss, which was which was quite funny because he, <laughs> he would be quite you know humorous. He'd say, "Well, you're the boss," but he'd have a twinkle in his eye. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to ask um, both of you this question. Um, you know, one of the criticisms of Mandela, I think it was really interesting for me to hear you talk about coming here to learn about him because I was a teenager at the time and I remember being in high school and and stories about Mandela and apartheid were in the daily news and, and that was something that I was relating to and trying to find my place with in terms of, you know, where did I stand politically on that and how could I make a statement about that being, you know, a kid that grew up here. But one of the things, um, you know, one of the criticisms of Mandela, which I do think is common for activists um, who who work within government um, or other structural systems to affect change, it seems like the people who are working within those systems, you know, whether they're government or whether they're academic or whether they're corporate, they are often criticized by those who are outside that system. You know, you're not being bold enough. You're not doing enough. We want you to do more. At the same time, those inside that system are saying, you're being too bold. Don't go so fast. Slow down. So I'm interested in both of your perspectives um, as an academic, someone who you know holds a leadership position in academia, Daryl, and also positions of power within government. And, and you've touched on that a little bit already, Rob. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'll go first. First of all, it's been a delightful conversation. You can see why I wanted Rob to come to campus. So this is going to be, this is a great podcast. I think two things, as I've been listening in the time that we've been together, we've spoken about rugby and, and respect. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we want to sort of generalize. And, and I use those two uh, anchors, if you wish, because rugby, as Rob shared, is it's more than a game. You learn to work in a collaborative way with people. Uh, you're not the most important person on the team. Everyone has a, a role to play. And then we've been speaking about respect. Uh, you know, the, the fact that Peter Maritzburg is a city, South Africa is a country, one group had political power. But in order to bring about that change, you have to be able to respect other people and listen. So those two anchors, the way they translate into my work in in the current role that I'm in is I don't have a great deal of power. People think I have positional power, I have a title, but the only real power I have is the power to persuade people that I have a good idea or two. Uh, and the way you do that, drawing on sort of the teamwork with rugby and respect of people, is you have to be uh, a good listener. You have to truly listen to people. Um, I think I was sharing the other day, one of my favorite biographies is Meacham's biography by Thomas Jefferson, because Jefferson was president at a different time, but he opened the White House and just listened to people and what people had to say. And so I, I try and model that in, in the work that I do, um, knowing that we have to have a great deal of respect for the institution in this case, and for the history of the institution. And as we chart a course forward to bring about change, we have to build on the strengths of the institution uh, in a respectful way. And when we make decisions that may seem radical departures from our institutional DNA, we have to, as leaders, take the time to explain to people why we make those decisions, uh, you know, in the way that we do. And the glue that really keeps us all together, at least in higher education, and as I've been listening to Rob today and over the course of the last few days in politics, I think uh, you have to consult with people and, and shared governances what we value and pride in, in higher education. And so John Lombardi wrote a great book a couple of years ago called How Universities Work. And one of the points he makes in the book is that universities change very, very slowly. And I think probably political systems do to some extent as well. We are just here for a moment in time to be able to influence the course forward. And so people who are not in those roles, and not because they know more or because they're cavalier, they oftentimes look at the work that's done in higher education or in politics, and they may be critical and say, you know, you're not moving quickly enough or you're moving too slowly. But at the end of the day, we stewards for a particular point in time and can, you know, advance things. And really, history over a longer period of time will be a better judge than sort of trying to see change 
you know, in, in a month or a few months or a couple of years even. So I think the shared governance piece is is a critically important one. And then in my role, it's my responsibility with the slow and steady growth that we continue to have is to advocate for the requisite resources to ensure we can add faculty positions and we can add the physical facilities to ensure that we can remain a strong institution, we can serve our students as best as possible so they can be successful and go on to transform other people's lives in society. Mm. Um, let me start. Um, obviously, I'm a great admirer of, of, of uh, Mandela. I don't think I hero worship him, and I think we often make a mistake like that. Politicians are not worthy of heroism, because politics, by definition, is the art of what is possible. So you can have a campaign, you can dream about, take the American system, it's built on checks and balances. So you can have a democratic president elected by a huge majority and a Republican-controlled Congress. So how, how revolutionary can you be? <laughs> uh, no names, no pectoral. Or you can have a president that doesn't, even if he's on the same party, doesn't necessarily get along with him. And I think it's applicable. If one looks at the African situation, no good saying whether it was a political miracle, it was this or was that. Mandela recognized that in order for us to go from not just apartheid, but from a parliamentary system to a constitutional system with a Bill of Rights, so that voting, whether you were black or white, yes, you had the vote, but the Constitution protected. So we have 11 official languages. So nobody can feel left out. Hey, I'm a foreigner. I'm, this is my country, but I'm not allowed to use my mother tongue. So if you go to court, you are you can speak your mother tongue and they have to make adjustments so they can understand you rather than you have to go and speak broken English and maybe get the life sentence because your English wasn't so good. And then we have a human rights commission, a gender committee, all those kind of institutions, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of association. So whether you're a minority or not, if your language is protected, your language, your religion, your whole culture then it really doesn't matter who's the government, does it? <laughs> You've just got to be good neighbors, get on with it, respect people. I live in a block in which there's two Christian churches and a mosque. Now, people say, you live near a mosque? I say, yeah, it's five doors away. I'm surrounded by people of all religions. I have the world's religions in one block. I can hear 10 or 12 languages every day. Just sit outside. Students are walking past from all over Africa. So that whole idea of getting unity and diversity, um, and, and he brought it, he recognized that. So yeah, you can come up with all these radical ideas, let's do this, let's do that. You could have prompted a really bloody civil war. People say, hey, we're going to fight to the death here. And if you threaten people, if you say, listen, you either give up power or we kill you, well, then you're going to have a war. Mm -hmm. That's very simple. So I reject almost with contempt when people say, oh, Mandela wasn't bold enough. Let me tell you, the guy spent his resolution, his defiance, 27 years. He came out of jail saying exactly the same thing he said when he went in. He didn't, he didn't compromise on one issue. He said every person in this country of, of adult age, regardless of creed, color, should have the vote non-negotiable. He had 48 meetings with the government in secret. It's coming out now. And they kept trying to say, well, you know, we'll never accept that. He said, well, then there's no basis for further discussion. Mm. So they'd come back and say, okay, how, how do you protect us? He said, well, Afrikaans, I've learned it. It's a wonderful language. I think it should be one of the official languages. So suddenly the Afrikaners' main fear, we're going to get wiped off the face of the earth by this black majority, Boom. You say, no, no, no. That's why you have a Bill of Rights. You know, so one by one, so I mean, the changes he brought, not just freedom, but to create a new society, a constitutional democracy. There's probably only two in the world, you know, <laughs> mm. other than the U.S. and South Africa. Yeah, there's, there's a, there's, I mean, Canada's often described as a constitution that's looking for a country. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's a bit of a, a, a simplification. So, yeah. I, I think people should, it's fine in campaigns and rallies, you, 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 this is a movement that's going to do this, it's going to do that. Once you get into power, um, as Daryl was saying, this is a big institution with a history. 
your ability to change course is there, but it has to be incremental. It's not going to be, hey, from tomorrow, the national language is Arabic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all, all classes will be in Arabic. Yeah, wait, what are we talking about? That's, that's chaotic. So as you grapple with diversity issues, whatever, whatever, you, I think as Daryl was saying, there's, there's a, a reaching out listening process. And Mandela, again, how do you address people's fears? Well, for a start, understand them. Mm-hmm. If you can't speak their language, how the hell are you going to communicate with them? It sounds fundamental. But if I ask now, how many Americans speak Korean? Not, I don't expect you to speak Korean, but how many in the diplomatic corps? Mm-hmm. So how do you deal with North Korea if nobody can speak their language? It's not a political statement, I'm just saying. Right. If, if you want to be interactive, reaching out, having alternatives to war, then you've got, you've got to be able to talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think I'm correct. As we sit here now, South Africa does not have a consul general in South Korea. So what are, what are we going to communicate? I don't want to be sarcastic. Are we going to conduct this by Twitter? What are we going to do? Mm. There's got to be somebody. You've got to reach out. As repugnant and ridiculous as we see what's happening in North Korea. don't think I'm apologizing for them for one second. But there's got to be that basis for discussion. That's the only way to avert it, the kind of crisis. Yeah, so uh, I think we ought to see what Mandela did in that that kind of, what, what's what's possible? What are the key elements at that time? Maybe there's been a rallying cry for 30 years, we need to do this. But at that particular juncture, what do we do? Mm. And as he recognizes rugby, yeah, I can wipe rugby out. I can say, hey, rugby's banned. I can do what my predecessors did. I can ban things I don't like. And you're just going to alienate large sections of your, of your population. So I think, in fact, that's, that's his gift to the world. I wonder if you'll indulge me one final question. Um, I'll this leave it is, to Daryl. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, as you hear, I, I get on my horse sometimes. No, I, I, I'm very much enjoying this. And it relates so much, you know, as you said, Daryl, to the conversations that are taking place across our campus every day, you know, and multiple times a day. Um, you know, and this is actually related to a book that some of our high school English classes are reading. So um, they're reading Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. And so I've been tuned into that because I have a, a, a daughter in high school. Um, and and uh, so I heard him recently in an interview um, talking about how um, in America we're burdened by the history of genocide and slavery that we haven't addressed. And we're burdened by it because we haven't addressed it. So, so his point is that until we as a nation can address this, um, we, we can't become a society that values our citizens equally. And, and so he referenced um, Rwanda and Germany and South Africa as nations that, um, that, that their societies have recognized that they can't make progress um, without this process. And he calls it um, giving truth a hearing. You know, he um, talks about how you can't have justice without truth. And, and so, so his point is that we first have to talk about slavery. We have to talk about lynchings. We have to talk about segregation. And, and um, you know, I was thinking about that more when you, when you were speaking earlier about, you know, um, not wiping out some of these monuments that, that you have, but, um, but, you know, providing the fuller story mm-hmm. for people. Um, so from your experiences in South Africa, um, I'm interested, um, both of you, in, in, um, in you speaking to the value and the process of, of that truth-telling on a very large societal scale. Yeah, yeah let me be brief. Yeah, another one of Mandela's uh, genius ideas was to establish a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, yeah, chaired by Desmond Tutu. That afforded every individual in South Africa. If you believe that you committed a crime and it was politically motivated, please come forward. And if you tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, that commission can grant you amnesty. You'll never be charged. We want the truth to come out. And they held hearings around the country. And it gave an opportunity for many of the apartheid killers to come forward and say, hell, please. I'm sorry, I killed, yeah, it was me, I opened fire that night, I killed 11 people, 
We cut them up and we buried them. I know where they're buried. And if need be, I'll take you and show you the spot. And you say that in front of the families. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, that... So I don't want to say that solved all of the issues, but certainly for... It, it took a burden off people on both sides. It allowed people, families, to achieve closure, particularly for Africans with their deeply spiritual values, that not knowing where your child or relative is born, actually the, kid, the child never lived then. The child has no hope of getting any spiritual relief after death if you can't. So, yeah, it's important for anybody to know, but in Africa, it's doubly important to you. Your very being, it's as if you never existed. If we don't know how you died, where you buried, you're nothing. So that process was very important, and of course, we, we took that idea. Mandela played a key role in Rwanda, Burundi as well, on that basis. It, it didn't solve all of the problems. Um, I sometimes still get a bit bitter and twisted. I know people who were killed. I've got a pretty shrewd idea who killed them, and they didn't come forward. But I've had to, I've had to get over that. That was the process. It's not for me now to try and foment anger and violence. That was a moment we closed the chapter. Um, and I think, yeah, I think there are lessons from America to be learned because you know, you can, as I say, you can look at the Civil War purely as a military exercise, or you can dig deeper. And I, and I think it would be very important for Americans to do that, to, to deal with it. What, what was this war about? South African history is riddled with, oh, no, this, this, this wasn't about slavery. This was about land. Rubbish. <laughs> Absolute rubbish. It was about maintaining relationships between the boss and the underling, the master and the slave, at the end of the day. Uh, and you know, the British did the same. Both the Afrikaners and the British tried to wipe out the Zulu nation on several occasions for a very simple reason. They wanted the Zulus to be laborers, nothing else, to help grow the economy. And for that they have to subjugate them, quite simply. But if you read the Anglo-Zulu War, oh, these famous battles, the highest number of Victoria Crosses awarded in a single day, it's a glorious military exercise. Oh, yes, it is. I can admire their bravery, but what the hell are they doing there in the first place? Mm. Um, and then you realize, well, okay, well, you know, the other wars were fought between the English and the Dutch because suddenly they found diamonds and then gold. And then the British said, hey, we didn't draw this map properly. Let's just change the line. We need that gold. We need the diamonds. So now, now, you, now, now you've got to conquer somebody else. So again, the wars in South Africa are not glorious events. Very difficult to regard those people as heroes. And, and I mean, some of them were very brave. But the reality is the wars were fought, hey, for some very dubious <laughs> reasons. And, and of course, the politicians don't openly say that. And unfortunately, the histories are written by usually the people who won the war. So you get a very slanted view. Enough said from me. Yeah. As folks know, I really like quotes and... I'm kind of a quote collector, and as we've been speaking, I think one of the quotes I think that's attributable to Nelson Mandela is he said, in, in terms of language, he said, if you speak to a person in a language they understand, it goes to their head. But if you speak to them in their language, it goes to their heart. And so in a literal sense, you're looking at language, but sort of applied to the question you posed, I think you can also look at language in a metaphorical sense as well. And I think Again, truly the ability to understand when people are speaking about their perspective and their experience and the way you the way you truly move anything forward is, is by truly listening to people and truly understanding, even if you don't agree with their perspective, understanding where they where they're coming from. The other quote, of course, is um by Echebe, Junior Echebe is now deceased, but probably most famous for right for the book Things Fall Apart, which was translated into many, many, probably a dozen languages. Uh, and he said, until the lions produce their own, their own historian, the story of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. And so if you apply those 
quotes to, to our current contexts, whatever the perspective is and whatever the polemics are, we have to go in as human beings truly listening to other people's perspectives and then trying to forge a way forward. Uh, if we don't, we then just live in echo chambers where you just got one group's positing an, an extreme perspective or their perspective and the other group positing their perspective and you just will remain uh, locked in those positions. And so I think it's the listening piece can't be can't be overemphasized. Well, thank you both very much um, for your time and, and your thoughtful answers. I appreciate your bringing your, your South African perspectives combined with your perspectives um, of people who have lived and, and worked in the Southern United States in particular. Um, I think that is really, um, it's, it's made for a very rich and engaging conversation and conversations that, um, that, that I know, you know, they're, they're going to continue on this campus. Um, there's so much more for us in this regard to discuss, you know, on our campus and, and you're giving us this great, you know, I was going to say jumping off point, but it's, you know, um, we've been jumping off for a while. It's just, it's continuing the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, we've got this, um, this endeavor and it's challenging and it's difficult, this work of, of building a campus that's, that's welcoming, um, to diversity of, of, you know, thought, belief and community. And these conversations are so critical to that work. So, Thank you very, very much for your time and for being here today. Oh, thank you. Thank you and good luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it only took us 20 years, so <laughs> you got some catching up to do. A little bit, yeah, yeah. I think so. <laughs> Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks with assistance from Wes Craig. Our web team is Pete Montaldi, Alex Waterworth, and Derek Wyckoff. Research assistance comes from Elizabeth Wall, and video and photo support come from Garrett Ford and Marie Freeman. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes. <laughs>